0: Welcome to Josh's Worst Nightmare Oddcast, I'm your host Josh Schlossberg, author of Charwood and Molina, surveying the dark landscape of biological horror fiction. This episode we've got Haldane B. Doyle. Haldane B. Doyle, author of Our Vitreous Womb, is a former research scientist turned experimental farmer from the wilds of subtropical Australia. He blogs regularly about his farm on Substack, but also found the time to write a series of hard sci-fi novellas set in a future built on pure biotechnology. Welcome to my nightmare, Haldane.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I'm I'm looking forward to a chat.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Well, on Josh's Worst Nightmare, of course, I invite on horror authors... Dark fiction authors to talk about an aspect of biological horror, which I define as living creatures and vital processes, somehow relevant to their writing. This episode, we're talking about biology and hard science fiction and dark fiction. So I think it's pretty apparent why we're talking about that. So maybe, maybe start with a little bit of your background as a scientist, because I think that brings a lot to science fiction, obviously. Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I grew up absolutely obsessed with biology. I grew every strange plant I can get my hands on. I, I really love the carnivorous plant episode you did recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I grew all of those and I kept every invertebrate and vertebrate that I could get my hands on too, because um, I grew up on the very outer edge of suburbia, like uh, right near the beach. So um, blue ring doctor Pie and moray eels and mantis shrimps and jumping spiders and all, all the things that um, Adrian Tchaikovsky dreamed about I got to do as a kid so I, I was very blessed in that way and that led me into a career in research science which you know, it was good while it lasted but I wanted to do more creative things with my time so I became an experimental farmer instead and that gave me time to write fiction because i kept looking for a book that tried to imagine a future society built purely on biological technology. And I looked and looked and looked and I couldn't find any. So I'm like, well, I guess I'd better write it then because no one else has gotten around to it. And it just seemed like such an obvious idea to me.
0: Very cool. So Australia is a place I haven't been to. I haven't been to a lot of places, frankly, but that's one that I certainly haven't been to. I've heard a lot about So my understanding is that to a certain degree, the creatures there, it's like it's a menagerie of nightmares in some ways. You mentioned the blue ring octopus, a lot of things that obviously can take your life if they chose to. But so many fascinating, amazing creatures that have evolved because it's basically this giant continent in the middle of an ocean. So do you feel blessed to be in a place that has such biodiversity and rarity of life?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. But you do have to um, to watch your step. As a, an incident, just the other day, I was out picking vegetables in the garden and two eastern brown snakes were like a meter away from me. And I see them pretty regularly. These are the second most dangerous snake in the world in terms of like how many fatalities they cause. For, they're just all over the place at the moment. And because there were two of them, they were either fighting or mating. And it was really warm and it was dark and they were all charged up with hormones and and sunlight. And normally they would just head in the opposite direction from you. Like they're not out to get you, but these ones got confused and barreled directly towards me trying to escape because they didn't know exactly where I was. So yeah, I had to make a split second decision. Do I stay completely still and just let them pass under my feet? Because I was pretty much barefoot. Um, Or do I jump out of the way? Because if you're moving when they're close to you, they're more likely to get panicked and confused. Um, Whereas if you stay still, that can be a little bit more hair-raising because they'll often like stop underneath you, like right near your feet if they think that they're under protection. So yeah, that was just, you know, another day in the garden for me.
0: That's excellent. Well, I'm glad you made it out alive. (laughs) I'm glad they're safe. How big is a brown snake?
1: Uh, They are usually about a meter and a half long at maturity. So they're pretty big.
0: That's pretty big, and they have a a venom.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, one one of the most potent venoms around. So yeah, if you do get a proper bite, then you have to take it very seriously.
0: So is that kind of a nerve toxin? Is it? What... Yeah,
1: I think it's mostly a neurotoxin, but I think they also okay. mess up with your blood clotting. Okay. So, so it's a two punch. So okay. yeah.
0: <laughs> Yikes! Well, that's that's exciting. So it's not an exaggeration what people say about Australia. Then. In terms if of- you if you <laughs> live
1: in the cities and suburbs where most people live then you see less of this kind of wildlife I'm I'm on the very very urban fringe of one of the smaller capitals like probably an hour and a half's drive from the center and I think it's meant to be one of the biggest uh, most spread out metropolises in the world like it's just the area is huge even though the population is quite low um, but yeah it, it, that's what Australia is like but Seriously, you're far more likely to get seriously injured just driving the ridiculously long distances in Australia. The snakes are. So, it's, it, it, here's the thing with fear like people worry about being eat, eaten by a shark. You're more likely to just drown, but that doesn't capture the imagination as much.
0: No, I agree. You know, and as a horror author, obviously, I like to play up some stuff, but yeah, every time I go for a hike, I go for a weekly long hike by myself in the mountains. It's just something I like to do. And we're like, oh, aren't you afraid of what they say bears? Aren't you afraid of, uh, you know, even you know what, mountain lions, rattlesnakes? Like, no, no, no. I'm like, I'm a little more concerned maybe about, you know, breaking my leg and staying out there all night. But reality is the drive to the trailhead is by far the most dangerous thing that I do. Just the drive mm-hmm. in. I mean, statistically speaking, it's not even close.
1: It's interesting too to like reflect on what the function of horror fiction is in society because like it's almost like a a training ground for learning to navigate the dangers that you can actually do something about. Like if you're going to get struck by lightning, I mean, other than staying indoors, there's not much you can do if you're out there and it's going to strike you. There's nothing you can do. Whereas if a bear starts coming after you, there are behavioral responses that can improve your chances of getting through it. And I mean, look at fairy tales, like they are the original horror stories for children. Mm -hmm. And they're designed to instruct the children uh, about how to deal with threatening situations.
0: Absolutely. No, I totally agree. I think that's totally correct. And I also think it's it's kind of also like building up your immunity to fearful things as well just getting used to it i also think you can maybe go too far on the other end and you start wallowing in it and like being psyched about violence and that's a different thing but but i will say really quickly on lightning just for our listeners there are some things you could do you find a gully somewhere lower down and you can crouch down on your shoes so you're not uh conducting it you know and you fit sneaker- together <laughs> yeah. So, so there's a couple things you can do, but uh, I've been, I've been in a, that's actually probably the closest I've come to dying out here is getting caught in some lightning storms, but uh, yeah, bears, you can do stuff. And as everyone knows, you run towards a bear, you jump on their back and you grab their ears and then you ride them. And that's, <laughs> and that always tames them. So that's what you do with bears,
1: mm-hmm. grizzlies
0: and black bear. But, uh, but yeah. So uh, yeah, I totally agree with, with the, the rest of that. Tell Tell us a little bit about what the hell is an experimental farmer?
1: Oh, so I trial different varieties and then I do breeding. I'm also uh, doing wide hybridization. Mm -hmm. There was a self-taught scientist in the U.S. called Luther Burbank, who just started hand pollinating and crossing all of these different species that people thought couldn't cross with each other and generated all of these wild hybrids. So kind of like the island of Dr. Moreau, but as a garden garden instead
0: so are you setting up a dystopia is that what you're about to do or
1: (laughs) (laughs) well here's the interesting thing like the person who domesticated rice that was a hybrid of a few wild species that was more productive and that one anonymous person who probably had no idea what they were doing they didn't know what cells or genes were um they put in motion all of the giant empires of East Asia that needed rice to generate those huge populations and all that complexity. And same with wheat in the Middle East. That was a three way Mm -hmm. hybrid of wild species. And I often wonder if different kinds of crops lead to different kinds of civilizations. And I explored Mm. that a little bit in my fiction as well, too. And I suspect that we've we've got a handful of like accidental crops that made accidental civilizations. Why don't we start creating new crops from scratch and see where it takes us?
0: That's really fascinating. Yeah, that's super interesting. They did that with corn as well. Corn was just basically a grass or something yeah. like that. And made, but I actually wasn't aware that it was a three different species to mm. create wheat. That's really interesting.
1: Mm.
0: And my um, understanding I mean, yeah, it, it happens
1: ahead. in animals as well, too. So chickens, for example, are mostly from one species of red jungle fowl but they've found genetic traces from three other species contributing to modern chickens. So animals hybridize as well too.
0: That's really interesting. One factoid I've known as well is that Australia happens to have some of the least wild protein species or something to do with the wild plants that grow in australia or were native to australia were a lot more limited than elsewhere in the world i don't know is, is that sound correct yeah, we,
1: we have a really really astonishing diversity of edible plants here they never underwent what we think of as classical domestication like you see in okay. in mexico and east asia and, and the middle east but there were systems of management that managed to survive up until colonization that were quite sophisticated. Hmm. So there's a a lot of um, raging debate at the moment about exactly what the Aborigines were doing with the land. But um, part of the reason why it probably didn't happen here is our climate fluctuates on a regular basis. And if you want to plant and harvest crops, you need to know when the rain's gonna come and when it's gonna be dry. So that's why I like like um, desert river valleys are the perfect places to start agriculture because the rivers flood on a pretty regular basis. Whereas in Australia, you know, every 10 years, it goes from wet to dry. Every hundred years, it has a bigger cycle from wet to dry. And it's, um it's a much more volatile place to create a civilization I see. <clears throat> of that nature. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cause my understanding, I think it was in the book, maybe it was guns, germs and steel or something like that. Mm. Talking about how, it's actually, it was amazing. The fact that the Aboriginal folks there were able to persist in such difficult climate and limited uh, food sources and just everything difficult all around. So take that for what it's worth, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So, all right. Biology and hard mm-hmm. science fiction. So do you feel like most authors do a good job of that or do they kind of suck at that?
1: <laughs> now I'm, I'm very sympathetic having tried to do it myself. Um, biology has some problems trying to put it into a pure text format. And if, if you want to stick to the pure facts. So one of the biggest issues is that things often take a lot of time. It's quite slow mm. and that can be difficult, particularly like evolutionary processes that take, you know, thousands or millions of years and, one example that did really well with that was the um, the first part of Children of Time, uh, mm-hmm. the Adrian Tchaikovsky novel about the uh, the giant spiders developing a civilization mm-hmm. on a on an alien planet. Um, it wasn't pure biotechnology. It, it the way it got around it, it had a a parallel story of humans traveling around in space, and because they were traveling at close to the speed of light, it allowed the spiders to have like time dilation and catch up, um, and it was a little bit hand wavy on the hard science side of things in terms of the evolution being driven by this nanovirus that was um, uh, added to the planet to kind of kickstart evolution. Um, that was probably the, was the the one miracle that was needed to kind of kick everything off. Mm. But <clears throat> I, d- I did find that to be a really uh, it, it was closest to what I wanted to achieve in my own writing. Um, ha- have you read Children of Time? I have not. It's it's good. I, I give it. A, I give it a try. Hmm. It, it's not super long. Um, how, how about Oryx and Crake by Margaret At- Atwood?
0: What was the name of? The, I know Or Atwood, but what was the title?
1: Um, Oryx and Crake.
0: No, I have not
1: read that. So that's a kind of peri apocalyptic um, near future. Um, so it starts out in a kind of high tech dystopia. And then one of the characters triggers a kind of um, uh, artificial um, pandemic that wipes out virtually the whole human race. And he's created a new kind of human beings called the Krakers, who are peaceful and like they're basically idealized human beings um, that are going to inherit the earth and take over from, you know, nasty old us. So um, it also, I mean, I love... Margaret Atwood's writing. And I love her passion for biology, but it definitely feels like a lot of the ideas she used were things she'd picked up secondhand. Mm-hmm. Um, that she'd kind of assembled interesting tidbits of biology that she'd been learning through the years into one story. So yeah, again, wonderful story, but there were bits of it where I'm like, uh, oh, it's not, it's not completely hard sci-fi. Right. Um see, that's the other thing with genetic engineering, it becomes this kind of magic spell that you can just make it do whatever you want. And real biology is very constrained by not just the physics of how organisms function and the ecology of how the whole world is put together, um, but the genomes themselves have issues of evolvability, which is a really cool um, idea. So a great example of this during human evolution, the part of our body that changed the most was actually the foot if you compare a chimp foot and a human foot, they're like, it, it's almost been completely remodelled mm-hmm. and that's the foundation for allowing us to have different locomotion and a different like function in the ecosystem. But the genes that control the development of the foot also control the development of the hand. So while those genes were being shuffled around to make better feet, we also got opposable thumbs as a kind of bonus because all the genes were being tinkered around with at the same time.
0: That's pretty fascinating, which makes me want to go off on a tangent. I will mention it and see if you bite. And if not, we will return aquatic ape theory.
1: Oh, I love this theory so much. And it's been poo-pooed by mainstream academics, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. I mean, look at history. Um, And I recently learned another key bit of evidence for the aquatic ape theory, so it, well, do and you this want to give people ex- just uh, as oh, a yeah, here, just give people, okay. yeah. Yeah, so there's a theory that there's a, uh, a missing stage in human evolution, a key early stage where we spent a large proportion of our life wading in shallow water, and that facilitated a change to a more upright posture. If we we're in water up to like our shoulders, um, it would have also corresponded to developing changes in our breathing that we could hold our breath deliberately. Chimps can't do that. Um, losing our body hair and getting uh, a layer of fat under our skin which a lot of other aquatic mammals have as well so yeah there's all these um properties of human beings that are different from chimps that have some overlap with aquatic and semi-aquatic mammals So that's the big theory. But I recently learned there's another interesting bit of evidence around this. And this was confirmed experimentally as well. This isn't just a a pure theory. So if you take human beings and you put us in the ocean for six hours a day, we actually absorb water through our sweat glands and filter out the salt so we can actually meet our water requirements. Like we don't have to drink fresh water. We can actually just be swimming around in the ocean for most of the day.
0: So all the people who are lost at sea and they die from dehydration, all they got to do is dunk in the water?
1: Yeah, all they needed to do was to be And think about this, when you get in a bathtub, your your skin swells up and you start absorbing moisture through your skin. And we actually have the capacity to filter the salt out of it through our skin. Holy
0: crap, that's amazing.
1: Yeah. And a person actually did this. They got volunteers to like float around in the ocean all day long and they measured their body weight and their urine production and quantified it all. And it's like, yeah, they're absorbing and purifying water through and they think they're doing it through their sweat glands, which can actually function as like little reverse osmosis units.
0: Why isn't the mainstream media covering that? Conspiracy. They're hiding
1: it's such a fascinating theory. And um it's interesting because like you you look at um, the cases of, uh, you've heard of a wild child, children that from a really, really young age are raised with animals mm-hmm. and the accounts of these and their, their reliable accounts often refer to them having unusual athletic abilities, like that they can run and jump and climb trees and do things that we don't think are humanly possible. But if you think about it, if you took a perfectly healthy child and you strapped them to a stretcher for the first six years of their life and then said, okay, now we're going to teach you to walk, they would never walk as well as a child who did it from from like one year of age. Their, their ligaments and their muscles and their joints undergo a developmental process in in concert with the way they use their body. Mm. And maybe we all have these unrealized physical potentials because we were kind of swaddled up as little babies and kept too safe. And we didn't have examples of how we could move.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, no, that's all super fascinating. And you can go online, you can find those videos of basically newborns who are swimming through the water. Like, I mean, they Mm -hmm. hold their breath, obviously, but they're able to just swim through the water. And, you know, we have web fingers, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't want to go too far down that we'll go back to our original thing. But I thought that (laughs) was a perfect segue. And for folks who don't know about aquatic ape theory, it's, I don't even care if it's real or not. I just choose to believe it. It's so awesome. and I'm usually pretty scientific in what I'm going to believe. I always have a little bit of, well, I don't know maybe Bigfoot's real, but I don't assume Bigfoot's real. Aquatic ape theory. I'm just, I think it's real. I don't give a shit. (laughs)
1: well the the big problem with that theory is the habitats that it would have happened in are under 60 meters of sea level rise in in the last ten thousand years so we we haven't had the opportunity to go looking for fossil evidence and it's difficult as well too because Mm -hmm. like modern humans are so well adapted for swimming that you couldn't necessarily tell just by looking at a skeleton that that creature spent most of its life in the water yeah so yeah it's um i don't know Here's the thing, like we can argue over the past or we can experiment with the future. Okay. And I mean, even today, there are examples of people, um, the the sea gypsies in Indonesia hmm. spend most of their day swimming. And that only happened, they only moved into that lifestyle a uh, thousand or 2000 years ago. And already their spleens are like twice as big as ordinary humans and uh, animals like seals store oxygen in blood in their spleen so that they can spend more time underwater and these sea gypsies have an unusual ability to stay underwater as they're foraging for you know shells and fish and things at the at the bottom of the shallows
0: cool so yeah they're evolving just like folks in the andes have different lung capacity mm-hmm. literally different bi- I mean, even their build a lot of times like with sherpas also in nepal and tibet their reason they're basically superhuman abilities is yeah their their physical form is different so they're up there they're carrying everybody's stuff they go up to the top they don't even have oxygen just Mm -hmm. so some european can go up with like every bit of gear i made it and and they're like (laughs) yeah well we this is our 15th summit this year big deal dude yeah yeah Yeah, interesting
1: and see that's the interesting thing like there is so much potential for this in fiction Mm -hmm. that i haven't seen tapped into so i did a um a short story on my farming blog a while ago occasionally i'll slip a little bit of fiction in there and it was imagining a future tribe that have given up the use of fire and they have a range of domesticated species that they use instead one of the key ones being um so they have domesticated ants that they use, hmm. that they carry around, you know, the 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 arboreal ants that like weave silken nests. Hmm. So they carry them around the landscape and then they have trees that produce seeds that the ants collect for them. Um, so they're in a, a three-way symbiosis between the humans and the ants and the trees. And the product that these trees create doesn't need cooking to be edible. Um, it, it's just basically protected and harvested by the ants. But um, the other thing that they've done is they've given up being a diurnal species and they live at night without fire and their eyesight has adapted so that they're fully functional in the dark.
0: That's and really, none
1: of those are, uh, are biologically that much of a stretch, but it's right. a completely different niche that humanity could move into in the future.
0: So, of course, when you do yeah, genetic engineering in sci-fi is because it's just an easy thing you can make like that how long do these changes potentially take in humanity we're talking thousands of years though right
1: yeah yeah so that's the one of the limitations when you do hard biological science fiction you usually just have to jump through time like set up the plot in a way that you um can explore the new world and give hints about how it came to be rather than actually showing it year by year changing
0: sure well one Mm -hmm story it's a movie i guess and not a book or maybe it was based on a book but probably not and everyone loves to hate it but water world right with kevin costner so starting to develop the gills (laughs) because they live in the water stuff which seems yeah unlikely and unnecessary so that might be an example of things going a little silly because why would we even first of all need to do that when there's other, you know, the adaptation of being able to like suck in water through our skin or maybe changing parts of our lung capacity over time, but yeah, creating gill. But how much, how much do you approve of the creative license aspect or do you feel like it should be according to the science?
1: It's like anything in art constraints can actually make things really interesting. Like it, it forces you to find other ways of solving problems but at the other extreme i do love sci-fi that's just fun so but but then again like often it's just silly things so a really good example of this is the matrix movies Hmm. so and i found i actually found out uh, uh, from the people who wrote it there's a a little bit of uh, an insight here so in the Matrix movies, it was explained that the, the, the robots, the evil robots, kept humans in those pods as batteries. Mm. And if you know anything about thermodynamics, that makes no sense at all. Like, you'd have to put more food energy into those humans to keep them alive than you'd ever get back. Um And I found out recently that the original script was that the humans were used as biological computers because our brains could do things that the the computer brains couldn't do. So they used us like when we were dreaming, we would solve problems for them and they Mm. would be kept in the simulation so we didn't go completely Ah. crazy. But the producers, the people who like paid the money for the script, looked at that and said, oh, American audiences are too dumb to understand how a human brain could be a computer in like the 90s. So they forced them to change the script. So it was batteries instead. And I remember as a kid sitting in the first Matrix movie, when they got to that point, just going, oh, this is so dumb. Like, why did they have to do that? Um, And you run into similar issues in the alien movies. As they go on, they become sillier and sillier. Hmm. So a new alien will be like hatched. And then five minutes later, it's grown like 20 sizes. Like it's the Grinch's heart. And I I wanted to do a sci-fi parody of that. The the Chinese colonize space and they actually start farming the xenomorphs for meat because they grow so rapidly.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, it would seem to make sense. Something that you can barely put any nutrition into and becomes that vast in mass. That's a could be a great food source, although I'm not sure how edible those things are. They have that acid blood. So that's probably a
1: problem. Then then again, look at the um the the culture around eating extreme chilies.
0: Yeah, right. So that could be very similar. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. (laughs) Yeah, so that fine line between fudging it a little. I've tried to write stories. I try to, and I think I typically do, that do keep in a world of science, unless specifically there's supposed to be some magical stuff going on. But I don't really think the public gives a shit i've i wrote a short story about toxoplasmosis which you probably know about but for Mm. folks who i don't i've probably talked about it on the podcast before it's a parasite usually comes from it comes from cat shit and basically it it makes humans and mice do some crazy things let's just put it that way
1: so makes us reckless
0: it can make us reckless it can it can have a, a whole slew of behaviors there's been a ton of studies on on that To even where photos of men who have been infected with toxoplasmosis are more attractive to women, just like Mm -hmm. things that don't even make sense and may not actually be really uh, based on anything at all. But I wrote a story called The Cat's Meow where I based it exclusively on all the science. I kind of did it meticulously, but honestly, I don't think the public cares. I don't think the readers, most readers really actually care. So probably with the matrix thing, yeah, I'm with you on the science there, but they were probably right that the American audience is too dumb. So (laughs) there is that line of, okay, well, what are you trying to do here? Are you trying to entertain people? Are you trying to get the point across? I typically do err on the side of well, this is what I think is important. And I don't care if you like it, but I'm also Mm. not the most popular author in the world. So something to be said for.
1: (laughs) Does the horror community have much of a thought about the hard, soft spectrum? Because I know in in sci-fi, it's a big issue. Fantasy, I guess it doesn't really matter. It's all, well, actually, no, that's not true. The magic systems can be hard or soft, depending on whether they're rule-based or not. So when you um,
0: when you define hard versus soft, can you elaborate more on what you mean by that in fiction?
1: Yeah. So in hard sci-fi, it's close to known physical laws, whereas soft science fiction, you basically just wave a magic wand and come up with anything that you like. Right. And there's variations in that. You might just have one invention of what if this existed, even though we don't know that it could. And then you follow on the plausible consequences from that. Um, and in fantasy, it tends to be more around the magic systems, about how um, rigid they are in following rules or relying on resources. Mm-hmm. And But in, I've never really thought about it being applied to horror. I and mean, is horror scarier when it's hard or is it more kind of off-putting and depressing? It's like it's more fun if you can just say, oh, no, that evil clown spirit doesn't even exist. I can go to sleep after the movie.
0: That's a good question. I think so long as there's an internal consistency, that's what's the most satisfying to audience members. I think audience members will roll their eyes at things that are just breaking their own rules. But as long as you mm. stick to the rules you've set up, certainly biological horror, which tends to be tends to be hard science. Maybe they fudge things once in a while for, okay, this contagion can do this or whatever. But I, I think... Yeah. I I don't, I don't know what, if people are really that worked up about it one way or another, I do think that a lot of biological horror does actually veer into the supernatural though. So there might Mm -hmm. be one leap beyond the science and then you can be like, oh, well, that's the magic part. So for instance, I wrote a story and I'd be curious, you think this is even possible, which it's definitely not, but I wrote a short story. I haven't found a home for it yet, but I I like it. Basically, long story short with it is a guy impregnates a lemon tree with his semen. Now, pretty unlikely. Is that what you're doing in your experimental farm, by the way?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, it's all ATCG, so anything's possible.
0: So there's a so I do have a supernatural element that i bring into it although some folks have suggested that i leave that component out and just leave it up to well you figure it out maybe this is a universe in which this is possible or something happened that we don't know so that's how i dabble in that
1: here's an idea here's an example of horseshoe theory though like really really hard science fiction almost loops around to mythological like dream logic so like if you had, you know, in a like creation myth that a man impregnated a lemon tree, people would be like, yeah, that makes sense in that kind of literature. And if you go to ultra, ultra hard sci-fi where you explain all of the steps that he did in his in his crazy lab to impregnate the lemon tree, you could get away with that as well. But it's just the in-between where you're like kind of, I don't know, you're not sure if it's mythical or technical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I I'd never, I'd never thought of it that way before.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting take on that. I also think that there is no such thing as magic, because even if a thing happens that we think is magical, there's got to be a science that explains it. So magic is just science yet unexplained. If there's a world of dragons and you can go to people, that's that's science if it can exist, you know? Mm. So... That might be another way of basically, yeah, anything magical is science and vice versa. Uh, getting
1: back to the aquatic ape theory, there's another theory which I've picked up on recently, which is even more amazing, which has got even less airtime, which I think deserves more of an audience. Um, so there's a PhD geneticist who spent his life studying animal hybridization. So he's written like huge well-regarded compendiums of all of the bird hybrids out there. Birds hybridize like crazy. Like they Mm. they don't care about species limits that much. Um, With mammals, it's a little bit harder, but he's also put together lists of well-established mammals, but also more speculative and uncertain reports. Basically, the further apart two species are, the less often they get a chance to interact and the less likely you are to have viable offspring. And it bleeds into part of the limitations with modern science we demand reproducibility that you can just set up a lab, do the experiment, get the exact same result. But if it's these really, really unlikely events, so um, for example, the Nazis tried to hybridize humans with chimpanzees to create like these monkey super soldiers. And it was, I mean, it was, you know, a century ago, their technical methods and everything were a bit half-baked, but just because they did, you know, maybe 50 trials and didn't get any viable offspring doesn't mean that you wouldn't get any viable offspring if you did a million trials. Mm. So every time you create a sperm or an egg, sometimes things go a little bit wrong. And if you get the right combination of mistakes, suddenly they can cancel each other out and you've got an opening. And it means that biology isn't quite like other reductionist science. There's a possibility for miracles that only come along once every million years. And this theory that I'm linking back to, Mm -hmm. so this Eugene McCarthy looked at human evolution compared to all of our like chimp-like ancestors. And he noticed that there's all of these weird traits in humans that appeared at the same time. Like they basically just popped out of nowhere. And it's always been a bit of a mystery about how they all came together at the same time. And through his lens of looking at hybrids, he's like, could it have been a hybrid? Could there have been a really rare hybridization event that started this whole like branch off the chimps and he listed all of the traits that humans have that chimps don't and then went looking through the mammalian kingdom for something that matches that and the only thing that matched was the pig
0: well i have heard that human flesh smells and tastes like pork Mm -hmm. so i'm sold
1: yeah well there's all there's all of these traits that pigs have that humans have that chimps don't yeah, the yeah, the the way our skin works with all of those sweat glands is something that you get in pigs too, and it doesn't appear in any chimps. And um, so, yeah, the idea would have been that there was a really unlikely, um, probably a male pig and a female chimp. Her offspring would have been raised among the chimp-like ancestor and back crossed to them so many times that there's little conclusive genetic evidence left. It's all been scrambled in the meantime. But, yeah, it's fascinating. And it's it's really interesting because you tell this to most people. And when I first heard it, too, you get a level of kind of visceral disgust. And I wonder if that is similar to what people a few hundred years ago felt when they first heard Darwin's theory that humans were descended from chimpanzees and they didn't want to believe it on a visceral level. It was confronting to, to think that they were biologically connected to something so inhuman
0: well they definitely were grossed out by that yeah for some reason this one doesn't gross me out um but well i guess to be clear it would be the the common ape ancestor right it would be prior pre-chimp and maybe even pre-pig but i guess the experiment would be do chimps and apes find pigs attractive and Um, if they don't cancel the theory
1: in in his um compendium of all of these um, other mammalian hybrids, he notes that young animals that are raised among other species will often sexually imprint on them. So before 100 years ago, most farms had multiple species of livestock all mixed in with each other. It's, It's a really recent phenomenon to have these mega farms with one species. And there's accounts all over the place of these weird hybrid animals. Well, these weird animals that look like they were hybrids of other species.
0: So, I'm looking up really quick about farm animals and um human interactions. I believe that it was chickens are the most popular. Um, see if I can deal with avoiding certain terms that will <laughs> but um <laughs> pigs, I'm sure pigs are not that far down the line either. so, that's really that's really cool I mean it's definitely not as cool I think at a party to bring that one up as aquatic ape theory <laughs> that's a little harder to defend but mm. I love that concept and I will look further into so that one is the does that have the pig a name? chimp
1: hybrid hypothesis at uh, the pig chimp hybrid hypothesis
0: Pig chimp hybrid hypothesis I think we' need to come up with a different name for that one a little <laughs> little uh I don't know. Just the the pig fucker, the pig -er (laughs) fucker hypothesis. I think is is the one. But uh,
1: but here's the interesting thing. If this is true, and Mm -hmm. it's looking more and more that hybridization is a major driver in speciation, not just in plants but in Mm -hmm. animals as well, Mm -hmm. what possibilities does that open up in the future? Um, that don't rely on, you know, expensive, complicated um, genetic laboratories and supercomputers analyzing genomes, that you basically just have a culture, which is, let's just mix everything with everything and see what happens.
0: Well, so that brings me to another question. and Maybe this is a a way of winding down here. So you brought up Dr. Moreau and Mm. likened yourself to a Dr. Moreau (laughs) <laughs> do you feel like there are certain things that we should not mess with or kind of anything goes in this realm? Uh I mean obviously excluding yeah. forcing people, you know, to do anything Look, obviously.
1: To to flip this around, if the yeah. chimpanzees and the pigs had been given like a, a crystal ball into the future and they'd seen what their offspring would turn into, these like murderous (laughs) hyperconnected like crazy species with these giant bulbous heads running around the planet eating everything inside. Maybe they would have been equally horrified that we